Hey everybody, coming to you live from the Fairfield Inn in beautiful Santa Maria, California. Why are you in Santa Maria, you might ask? Well, I'm here with a friend who comes down about once a month to visit her good lifetime friend, childhood friend, who is in Lompoc Prison. Uh, she and Danny were friends in junior high and in high school, and then Danny decided to rob banks. And he has spent the last 35 years in prison, both state and federal. And so um, he's getting to be released this year, but I've learned a lot about the prison system and it's been an interesting juxtaposition to what's been going on in my life with these murders and uh, D'Angelo. And it's helped me understand what actually happens in prison and, and the need for prison reform and some of the ridiculous, ridiculous things that go on there. But I won't uh, drag that out too much right now. But I wanted you to know that's what I'm doing. That's, that's my weekend. And I usually stay at the hotel while she goes over to the prison and I pretend to work. Tomorrow I'll do another podcast because I want to really get into some of these motions. But tonight I want to start with and, and talk about a, a unique thing that's going on. And I think I, I hinted at it in yesterday's podcast. And that's the idea of the, the victims starting to be um, put into different groups. So we have two groups right now that are fairly significant. We have all the people who have been hurt by D'Angelo but do not have active charges against him. So those are the, the crimes that do not meet the statute of limitations and therefore are not being pursued. And then we have those crimes that are being pursued, of which my dad and Charlene are one. But uh, So that's two different groups. There's also another kind of separation that's happening, which is groups of victims are clustered by jurisdiction. And until this week and the news of the plea leaked out, I don't think I really grasped all of the ways that we are subsetted. Is that a word? I don't know if that's a word. Anyway, I don't think I've really grasped the way we've been put into different groups. We've, of course, come together. And for the most part, and again, we really invite those who haven't already participated to come hang out with us, but we've come together and we have a pretty strong all for one and one for all value. So even if our opinions about what the ultimate outcome should be we respect that among each other, and we honor that because everybody is entitled to their opinion, of course, but we really stick together as a unit and want to make sure that whatever the outcome, it we get the best outcome for everyone, not just for a subset. So here's what I'm going to do is I'm first going to remind you who has, who, who which counts are pending. And this is important because we're going to talk maybe tomorrow about the motion to dismiss and these are the counts. Some of these counts are the ones that are being uh, that are in the motion to dismiss. Primarily, I believe, but I haven't read the motion yet. But I think it is primarily because they are not in the Sacramento County. So let me go through these counts just so you can remind yourself what was going on. And if you want to see them for yourself, I had thankfully written them down on my blog on the um, August 22nd blog. If you go in and put in August 22nd or search on charges, you should see this blog come up and it's D'Angelo Arraignment 26 New Charges. So here's what we have. Count one was the murder of Cla Claude Snelling. That's in Visalia. Count two was the murder of Kate Maggiore in Rancho Cordova. Count three was the murder of Brian Maggiore in Rancho Cordova. Count four was the murder of Deborah Manning in Santa Barbara County. Count five was the murder of Robert Offerman in Santa Barbara County. Count six was the murder of Sherry Domingo in Santa Barbara County. 
Count seven is the murder of Greg Sanchez of Santa Barbara County. Count eight, the murder of Charlene Smith of Ventura County. Count nine, the murder of Lyman Smith of Ventura County. Count 10, Patrice Harrington of Orange County murder. Count 11, the murder of Keith Harrington in Orange County. Count 12, the murder of Manuela Wathun of Irvine. And count 13, the murder of Janelle Cruz of Irvine. Those are the murders. Now, we have more counts, but just uh, be clear, those are the murders. So now we're going to shift to the rapes where they were able to add robbery or kidnap during the commission of a crime, which then made them chargeable offenses. They didn't have a statute of limitations issue. And I don't have the names. These are all Jane Doe's. So I'm going to read the dates in case you want to look them up. The first one is count 14, Jane Doe 1 of Sacramento on September 6, 1976. Count 15 is Jane Doe number 2, Sacramento, April 2nd, 1977. Count 16, Jane Doe 3, Sacramento, April 15th, 1977. Count 17, Jane Doe of Sacramento, May 3rd, 1977. Count 18, Jane Doe 5 of Sacramento, May 14, 1977. Count 19, Jane Doe 6 of Sacramento, May 17, 1977. And if you think these are stacking up back to back, they are. Count 20, Jane Doe of Sacramento, May 28th of 1977. Count 21, Jane Doe 8 of Sacramento, October 1st, 1977. Count 22, Jane Doe 9 of Sacramento on October 2nd, 1977. Count 23, Jane Doe 10 of Contra Costa County, October 7th, 1978. Count 24, Jane Doe 11 of Contra Costa County on October 13, 1978. Count 25, Jane Doe, number 12, of Contra Costa County on October 28, 1978. And finally, count 26, Jane Doe, 13, of Contra Costa County on June 11, 1979. Now, when you listen to that group of humans that where the cases, now these are the charges that are now pending against D'Angelo. All the other rapes and burglaries aren't charged because of the statute of limitations. So what you have here are murders and rapes, but they're not even for the rape, they're for commissions of a crime, uh, uh, acts of burglary, robbery, kidnapping during the commission of a crime. So they're they're a little different. I guess that you could maybe think of them as less than. I don't think of them as less than, but you could think of them. Maybe from a legal perspective, they're less than. But this is important because this now sets up a subset. So we have all people that were harmed by D'Angelo, the whole universe. Now we have a subset of those who have charges pending. The motion to dismiss is looking to take out all the counties that are not Sacramento County, which essentially is just a set of rapes and the Maggiores, I believe. And so that's not a lot of, um, and the Maggiores were, I, I believe, are 
harder to make because harder to convict on because they are using a gun of unknown caliber. So if you think about it, if we extract just what's left in Sacramento County, we have those two murders and then the rest are the the um, rape charges that aren't really rape charges, but other charges related to the rape. If that happens, that is a significant shift in what we prosecute in Sacramento County. But it also means, as far as we victims are concerned, is that we have a bunch of victims in different jurisdictions. And until this week, I don't think we really realized we all weren't getting the same information. So I understand this is a unique case, and I understand this is a lot of cases and a lot of victims, but we've seen ourselves as a unit. Unfortunately, the way the legal system works, they haven't seen us as a unit. I don't know why I didn't figure this out before now, but I should have. It just seems obvious to me now, but that's not to say we aren't going to do our best to see if we could still be considered as a unit. Here, let me give you an example of what that means when I say considered as a unit. It turns out in Sacramento, and I thought I was on this mailing list because honestly, I represent my family. My brothers aren't interested in getting updates from anyone. And so typically Ventura works with me. And I understood as a courtesy, Sacramento was including me in their communications but it turns out that's not the case. And I didn't even know that because how do I know what I'm not getting? I mean, face palm, right? I should, I would never know what I wasn't getting until one of the other victims thought, I'm going to start to post these, these letters we're getting out of Sacramento because it's clear everybody else isn't getting this information. So here's a letter that came out um, earlier this week. And I apologize, I should have the date, but I don't because it was shared um, on Facebook and I didn't get the date of this letter. But here's what came out to the Sacramento victims. Uh, and I believe this actually went to all of them. Now, not subset it about who has charges pending and who doesn't. I believe everybody got this one who has a case against, who has who has been harmed by D'Angelo. That's an easier way to say it. Here's what comes from Victim Services. Good afternoon. In the late afternoon of Monday, March 2nd, the de defense attorneys for Joseph D'Angelo filed two motions with the court. One of the motions contained a footnote which stated, Mr. D'Angelo is 74 years old. He has offered to plead to the charges with a lifetime sentence. The media has now published numerous articles speculating about the meaning and status of this plea offer. We are writing to clear up any confusion about the current status of this plea. It is true that Joseph D'Angelo, through his defense attorneys, has offered to plead guilty to the 26 pending charges, those that I just read to you, and allegations that are filed against him in exchange for a life without the possibility of parole. You will love to know that this is called LWOP in the business. In other words, he would plead guilty to life without parole if the prosecution took the death penalty off the table. This is a decision that is ultimately made by the prosecution. I'm sorry, by the elected district attorneys. This is really important, okay? Just I'm going to repeat that because it's very important. This is a decision that is ultimately made by the elected district attorneys. We want to be clear that there has not been a decision made regarding the defense offer. In addition, no decision would be made without consulting with and informing the victims and families and families of victims prior to the announcement of a decision to accept any offer. 
Okay, their emphasis is on, uh, I'm just going to make sure I reiterate their emphasis, that there has not been a decision made by the district attorneys and no decision would be made without consulting with and informing the victims and families of victims. So that's really important. Again, I didn't get this letter. This is because someone else has shared it. At this time, we are continuing to prepare for the preliminary hearing, which is scheduled to start on May 12th, 2020. Again, you will be needed, if you will be needed to testify at the prelim, we will be contacting you directly to discuss that. There have been a number of questions about whether the victims and witnesses that will be testifying will be allowed to watch the proceedings before or after their testimony. That decision ultimately lies with the judge and we will keep you informed as those decisions are made. Okay, I'm just going to take a brief aside here and say just that paragraph has really got some folks spinning because I don't know why we don't know before, by now. It seems like we're, we're eight weeks out. We should have a good sense of who's test. I would think our prosecutors have a sense of who's testifying and who isn't and that we could settle some of the anxiety by making that clear. But it hasn't been made clear in many cases about who's testifying. Some folks do know, like I mentioned yesterday, my brother does know he will be testifying, but I'm not testifying and I plan to attend. And so I didn't realize that other folks didn't know what was going on. Of course, we're just one case, so it's probably why I know a little bit more because it's just one case. But that paragraph is really important because we need to get that information cleared up and the victims really deserve to know who's testifying and who isn't and who's going to be allowed to come to trial. The next, here, I'm going to go back to the letter now. The next court date will be on March 12, 2020. At that time, we anticipate that the following motions will be heard. Now, this is early in the week. One, the motion to compel the taking of buccal swabs from the defendant filed by the prosecution. Buccal swabs are oral samples taken from the mouth. If I am botching the word buccal, I'm sorry. Number two, the motion to dismiss filed by the defense. And number three, the demurrer, and I'm, that's spelled D-E-M-U-R-R-E-R, -R -E -R, so it's a really icky word to say, demurrer for lack of jurisdiction, failure to comply with Penal Code Section 954, and legally barred prosecution filed by the defense. That, as I understand it, and I'll, and I'll fill you in on that um, hopefully tomorrow, is the sixfurcation of the case, getting everything back to the jurisdictions where they belong. As always, this is finally the letter concluding. As always, if you have any questions, please do not hesitate to contact the victim advocates or one of us directly. Thank you. And this is from the Sacramento County District Attorney's Office. In fact, this letter is specifically from the prosecutors from Sacramento, which is um, cool. I'm, I, I mean, it's really cool that they sent this out. The issue that we're having is that only Sacramento is getting this, and there is a, an assumption that the other jurisdictions are keeping their folks informed. But I'm going to share with you a letter that one of the victims wrote to a reporter this week that explains just how much we aren't in the loop. And again, I would not have known any of this information had it not been shared uh, with other, but from one victim with, with the rest of us. So that's a challenge for those of us who aren't in different segments to know what's going on. Later this week, in fact, it came out today, we got an update, and this is the one that I thought I was, this is the email I get as well, and I thought I was getting them all, but silly me, I don't know what I'm not getting. So this is what was the update from this morning. The next scheduled court appearance for the people of the state of California versus Joseph James D'Angelo will take place on Thursday, March 12th at 1.30 p.m. 
in Department 61 of the Sacramento Superior Court, Sacramento County. That's the, the courtroom that's there in the jail. Department 61 is where we've been every time, so no changes there. The following motion will be heard at the March 12th court appearance, the people's motion to compel the taking of buccal swabs from the defendant. So we're not going to hear about the other motions as they had initially thought earlier this week. The motion to dismiss and the demurrer for lack of jurisdiction will be held over, and I will explain that in their next paragraph. Yesterday, the court scheduled the following, following two defense motions to be heard on Wednesday, April 29th at 1.30 instead of this Thursday, March 12th, as pre previously indicated. So those are both the motion to, to dismiss and the defense demurrer for lack of jurisdiction. So if you missed it, we have another, another hearing in April on April 29th. I'm sure in the same place, same bat channel. Oh, I just showed my age on that one. Sorry. Anyway, uh, the, if I, it ends with, as this is typical, if you plan on attending March 12th, please reply to this email no, no later than the 10th so that they can plan accordingly before court and seating inside the courtroom. So typically, as I've, I think I've written about this before, we need to let them know if we're coming and if we're bringing a support person so that they can just make sure we get in there and get seats before the press and any other uh, folks who want to come in and watch. So, um, it's it's just so interesting to me because we didn't I didn't realize I wasn't getting this other kind of communication because it's by jurisdiction and my prosecutor will call me if she's got news although I've never particularly heard from my victims assistant people uh, maybe because they know the victims assistants do get me the court dates the the, the letter I just read they, maybe they know that is what I get but I don't get this information like. Um, Sacramento folks got from the actual district attorney's office. And that then causes confusion among us. If they haven't figured out we all talk to one another by now, I don't know what they're doing because we absolutely do. And we really have each other's backs, one for all and all for one here. So what we're looking for is some ways to potentially ask the district attorneys to figure out a way to let us to, to give us all the same information at the same time so we aren't confused and then if there's jurisdiction specific information of course provide that based on jurisdiction but in some cases people aren't hearing anything so this week brandy cummings at kcra in sacramento did a news story which was really good she talked to a defense attorney about the the idea of this plea and do you really put stuff like that in the footnotes and he thought that was incredibly odd that they had put that in the motion's footnotes and um, and that he, he actually suggested potentially it could put it put, create a situation where the jury pool is now contaminated and they might ask for a change of venue. Either way, that's back to me complaining about who's controlling the narrative here and I don't like that the defense controlled it all this week. In fact, they managed to rattle our cages. We did exactly what they wanted us to do. We freaked out. So guess who's controlling the narrative? In, when Brandy was doing her research for the news coverage yesterday, she asked a few people to send her a statement and she didn't get to use them on the air. So I asked um, both Chris and Gay if I could use their statements on this podcast because I'd like you to hear some other voices. So I am first going to read for you a statement from Chris and it's the same Chris you've read about um, in the paper. She was in the Oxygen article. She was cited in the Oxygen article and she also was... Uh, on Paige's podcast on Man in the Window. And this is what she had to say. 
I was 15 years old when raped by the East Area Rapist on December 18, 1976, in my home located in Carmichael. I was his 10th victim, and he was oblivious and was oblivious that such a monster was out in our neighborhoods. She's 15. She didn't know. The most recent court filings where they, where they are saying D'Angelo has offered to plead guilty in exchange for life in prison is puzzling. D'Angelo is apparently trying to avoid the humiliation of trial and to take away the power of victims and their families to see him in court, hearing the details of his horrific actions. Given the nature and volume of his crimes and the four-plus decades of freedom he enjoyed after committing them, he should not be allowed to avoid taking accountability for his actions in public. Speaking for myself and myself only, I fully comprehend that a plea bargain plea bargain giving D'Angelo life without the possibility of parole will save the taxpayers $20 million or more and may be in the best interest of the community. However, I am only in favor of plea bargain if it requires D'Angelo to 1. fully provide all requested information on his crimes and 2. he pleads guilty to all his heinous acts in court, whether he is being charged for them or not. D'Angelo is not charged with my rape, for example, due to the statute of limitations. However, it is important that he be asked in court on December 18, 1976, did you rape a 15-year-old girl three times? And that he answer out loud that he indeed, indeed did commit this crime. I have lived for 44 years with the specter of this horrible night always lingering in the background. The only way that I feel I can get some semblance of closure is for him to either be convicted of the crimes in a trial or for him to admit in court what he did. His power must be taken from him, whether voluntarily or by a jury. Then I can have closure. The reason I wanted to share that with you is that this is a woman who otherwise won't get any satisfaction because of the statute of limitations. If there is a plea to be had, and if, it's, and if it is something that can be negotiated, why don't we negotiate from a position of power and ask that he be held accountable for all his crimes, not just the ones he has been charged with? I offer that up to, for your consideration. Now, Gay's statement is a little bit different because she has, um, and her statement's a little bit long, I'll just warn you ahead of time, but she has some different issues. She's not in any of the counties I've mentioned so far. She's actually in San Joaquin County and her words say it well. So I'm going to literally read her words, but I wanted to make sure that they were heard and that's why I'm sharing them on this podcast. This is Gay, victim 31, March 18, 1978. My husband Bob and I were interviewed shortly after the arrest of D'Angelo at our home in Lodi, just before our trip to Paris for our anniversary. It's been a while since we have spoken, and she's in this case um, speaking to Brandy, so just, you know, this went to the reporter. But I feel I need to ask, I feel I need to speak out about my latest filings by the public defender in this case. I also wanted to express to you my ongoing frustration that some of us in the counties who have elected to do nothing to bring us justice are experiencing. First, in response to the defense motions to dismiss, I hope the issue is quickly denied by the court next week or subsequently, as I am sure the defense will continue to try to avoid bringing the case to trial through ongoing delay tactics. 
Secondly, in response to the defendant's offer to plead guilty to the 26 charged cases in return for receiving life without possibility of parole, I am strenuously opposed unless he is willing to confess to all of his crimes on the record in court. It is the only way I will ever have closure of the horrific repeated rape I suffered in 1978 at the age of 24. Otherwise, he deserves to feel the full force of the justice system seeking its highest punishment for his crimes. If he is not willing to be accountable for all of the events for which he is responsible, then he deserves to be, he deserves his place on death row and should not be allowed to manipulate us for a better deal unless he earns it by coming clean with a full confession. For 42 years, I've awaited justice in this case, and he does not deserve any leniency from monstrous murders, sexual attacks, and kidnappings. Secondly, I wish to express my frustration with, the San, Joaquin, with San Joaquin County, which continues to do nothing to resolve my case or represent my interests in providing me with up-to-date information. It is only through the Sacramento Victim Advocates at the DA's office that I have been notified of hearings and outcomes. This is uh, just, this is the same thing I, she gets the same thing I get. Until yesterday, I had not had any contact with the San Joaquin County Deputy DA in charge, Christine Reed, for about a year, and each time I had to initiate the inquiry and contact. When I reached out to her yesterday, she was completely uninformed about the recent filings by the defense, and I was surprised when I, and was surprised when I informed her. I also expressed my concerns about the possible plea of which she was also unaware. Yesterday, the Sacramento DA kindly sent an email to all the Sacramento County victims, but I was excluded, the justification being that I don't live in, the Sac in Sacramento County and that it is up to the San Joaquin County DA to keep me informed. They did not. Christine Reed's position is that the Sacramento County DA is supposed to keep her updated, but really hasn't been doing hasn't been good about doing that. All I know is that I am out here advocating for myself, networking with other victims and the Sacramento DA advocates to keep myself informed. I have no voice. No one in San Joaquin County DA's office seems to be making any effort on my behalf. It is very frustrating. I hope the judges in this case remember that there are many of us out here whose cases are open, who in at the very least deserve equitable treatment. So far, I have not been given any concise reason why my case has not resulted in charges when others similar to mine in Sacramento have been charged. It seems to me that justice is not going to be dispensed equitably in this case. San Joaquin DAs are not saying it's not connected. It's just that they are doing and have done nothing to seek charges. And what uh, Gay is referring to is just when we talk about those additional counts for kidnap or robbery in the commission of a crime, those kind of counts, that's what Gay's wondering, did hers qualify? Could they have pursued those charges? She has no answers. So again, she's saying it better, so let me go back to her words. Um, I'm sorry, other victims, let's see, San Joaquin, DAs, San Joaquin DAs are not saying it's not connected, it's just that they are not doing and have done nothing to seek charges. I know that the statute of limitations for rape was up after three years. We all just take a deep sigh, three effing years. That's nothing, nothing. But other victims have had kidnapping charges without statute limitations brought because they were moved from their bedroom to another location in the home. That happened to me. 
I have sat down with Christine Reed and asked her to explain why they won't pursue those charges, and she just says there is not a legal nexus to do so. At first, she said it was the others were all connected by DNA, but they are not. Another time, she said it was because San Joaquin did not have a murder victim, but the other counties did, did not, including Contra Costa. To my knowledge, San Joaquin has done nothing in over 40 years to resolve the case. They have never contacted me directly without me initiating the contact. Even the day of the arrest, a phone message at my husband's busy law office was all just asking for a call back. They couldn't send an officer by his office or to see me, never even attempt to speak to me. Could they not comprehend the magnitude of the shock for us? I found out about the arrest from my two adult daughters who learned of it through an acquaintance in Los Angeles and from the internet. I had no warning. It was Paul Holes of Contra Costa County that finally contacted me seven years ago, and he thoroughly investigated, investigated my case all those many years later over a period of several years. Sometimes I'd be heard from him from se for several days in a row or weeks in a row, and then maybe not hear from him for a month as he followed up leads. It was unnerving for me, very hard to bring up all my old memories, and I have tons of emails dating from 2012 to 2015 when he exhausted all the leads in Stockton. Even knowing of the existence of the investigative work he did, San Joaquin has done nothing to my knowledge to try to bring charges or at the very least stay up to date on the case on behalf of myself and the other Stockton victim. Every time I do call, as I did yesterday, they are clueless and totally uninformed. Sorry, I need to take a deep breath because now it's going to get hard. This is painful for me. It is very wrong that I have to dig for all the information myself. Whenever I have pressed Christine Reed, she just looks serious and says she really can't discuss too much with me as it might jeopardize the Sacramento DA's strategy. On the other hand, the Sacramento DA advocates that say that San Joaquin has handed the state. I'm sorry, let me, I botched that sentence. On the other hand, the Sacramento DA advocates that San Joaquin handed me off to keep me informed of hearing dates and outcomes, but as in yesterday's email to the Sacramento County victims, I am excluded because it is up to San Joaquin County's DA to stay up to date and inform me. The Sacramento DA has courteously included me in the hearing notifications, but it has made it abundantly clear that San Joaquin's cases are their own and it is up to them to it is up to them to pursue the information as apparently should Yolo and Stanislaus counties. Contra Costa on the other hand struck a deal to have Sacramento handle their cases. It is unfair and inequitable. Every victim counts and deserves a voice. If the citizens of California are paying $20 million to try this muster, we should all be included in everything. The justice process should not be just for a very few hand-selected cases. If my case remains uncharged, my testimony may not be required. I at least deserve the opportunity to attend the prelim I also and trial. I also deserve the right to stand before the man who attacked me and let him know how his selfish compulsions damaged a 24-year-old girl for the rest of her life. His offer to plea is just an insult without a full confession. It's another way for him to manipulate the system. He lived free and gloating for 40 years while all his victims suffered the pain of their personal loss. Now he would like to put it to bed and get on with his life. Albeit in an institutional setting, 
He's 74 and apparently has very few assets in his old age. Now he bargains for life without parole, a guaranteed roof over his head, three meals a day, and fine medical care. No nursing home fees. Yes, I am being sarcastic. But what he seeks is a lot more than the the $100,000 plus homeless population of our state receive. They live hand to mouth with no facilities, no clean clothes, no regular food, and no medical care. So if he wants to achieve that life without patrol status, he needs to earn it by confessing his crimes. And then she concludes by thanking Brandy and KCRA for their continued coverage and inquiry into these cases. So, like I said, I really wanted to share those statements with you because they're, um, they're incredibly moving. They so articulately express the frustration going on with folks as this case is ebbing and flowing, uh, especially based on this idea of a plea, which, by the way, I'm going to just reiterate, none of us should even know is happening behind the scenes right now. We sh- it should not be public. We should not be having reporters speculate. All of that is so inappropriate. And is it any surprise, honestly, swear to God, is it any surprise that this case has, that this has happened in this case? I tell you, sometimes I just want to scream. So I'm going to end this podcast today with a big thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, my thank you to KCRA and Brandy. But I, I, I did a tweet last night and I, um, once again, you know, I tend to have an opinion. If you don't know that about me, I, yeah, have an opinion. And I just thought I'd read the tweet because I think this is where we stand as a group of victims and, and for the most part women. We have some men, but um, Gay's husband was there during the rape, as I understand it, and, and has stood by her side this whole time. But it, it is a woman's crime. I, I don't care what anybody says. This is a crime against women primarily, and it's it's women have bore the brunt of his anger and viciousness and evil. So last night I was getting worked up and I did thank Brandy at KCR8 for a great story. And I think you can Google it. It featured a defense attorney who concurs that making the plea public is a tactic that might be a way to mess with the jury pool. D'Angelo's defense has argued the media might influence the jury every damn hearing. But instead, and I swear to God, every hearing they've had a motion to limit media exposure in the courtroom because they don't want to taint the jury pool. That's really happened. Instead, they leak this bullshit about him being willing to take a plea. To what, we ask? To what exactly? And that he's trying to avoid the death penalty? That's bullshit, too, because we all know Richard Allen Davis is still sitting on death row. So there's zero chance our asshat's going to be executed. No, this feels to me like he 100% wants to be in control. He does not want to go to court and does not want to face his accusers or the evidence that will prove he is guilty and bind him over for trial. At this point, when he is bound over, when we see all the evidence, the preponderance of the evidence that shows that he's the guy, then we can talk about plea bargains. Let's not forget that part. And exactly what he pleads to. It's not enough to plead to just the 23 charges. No way, sucker, you need to own the whole Megilla every damn crime. And at this point, I want the D'Angelo arraignment 26. I'm sorry. At this time, I want to see, I want, it was time to see, it's time to see D'Angelo again. This time we need to listen to the charges being brought against him. We need to know if he had help. 
sorry, I kind of botched that up, but we need to understand if he had help. A plea will shut down this process. What if he did have help? What if Sharon knew? Where's all the stuff he took? Where are his records? If he wants to negotiate, let's freaking negotiate. We are not done and he is not in charge. Not only do the victim need answers, but whole communities who were terrorized need answers. So get ready, big boy. We aren't young women anymore. We are grown ass women and we are ready to fight. That's where we are as we head into this. I'm going to go through the motions, uh, hopefully in the next podcast. And I thank you so much for listening.